Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malikian and I'm joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello. I'm the U.S. editor, if that matters. So, um... I to remember my name. (laughs) Soon for a second that was going to be a problem. So, three weeks we had guests, uh, but now it's just back to being James and I. And uh, we do have some good stuff to chat about today, though. First, we're going to look at the London Stock Exchange's outage. Uh, I believe it's its first big outage since 2011. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And then we're going to talk about something that I don't know if we've ever really discussed before, uh, blockchain. This is a brand new area I've been hearing about for the last few years, man. Mm. I think it's... uh, Interesting, interesting. So (laughs) we're going to look at projects that uh, have actually gotten off the ground and gone live, and we're going to look at projects that failed miserably, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Before that, though, uh, just a quick reminder that the Waters rankings are open for voting, as we've been telling you. Uh, If you're a bank, broker, asset manager, hedge fund, or some other kind of end user in the capital market space, want to hear from you, we'll link to it. Basically, there are 31 categories. You don't have to vote in every single one. If all you know about is the OMS space, that's fine. Just go in there, click on the OMS space, you know, pick who your winner is, and uh, submit your form. Time's running out, only a couple weeks left uh, mm-hmm. for voting on that. So if you want your voice to be heard, then go to that. And like I said, we will link to that in the waterstechnology.com post, not on SoundCloud. Okay, so first up, June 7th. So we're recording this on June 7th. Yep. But uh, the London Stock Exchange opened an hour late due to technical issues with its auction system that prevented traders from entering orders. Um, Jim, since you and Hamad Ali worked on this story, why don't you give us a rundown of what happened? Yeah, um, so obviously outages or exchanges are nothing new, they happen all the time. Uh, but this is the first kind of significant halt the LSE has had for quite a few years. Um, as we said earlier, the last one was in 2011, mm-hmm. I think where it shut down for about four hours and it rolled over to so its new system. Uh, this, I think, was relatively minor. Um, normally it starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. The LSE was identifying problems that meant that some traders weren't able to enter their orders into the auction system, so they halted it for an hour. Um, not really a massive impact, I guess. I'm talking to a few people, like I mean, I spoke to one guy at a bank who was like, you know, it happens, but you know, I'm, I'm more concerned if something goes wrong with our systems and everyone else in the market is going ahead and we can't enter our orders or adjust our positions or whatever, rather than yeah, the I thought whole thing that, now. The full quote on that one, I thought that was a good one. Um, was frankly some of our other some of the other exchanges have had bigger problems and the LSE systems are generally reliable. I'm more worried about our own systems going down or my terminal, something that leaves us exposed when everyone else is ticking along just fine, than something that affects the whole market. So yeah. I guess if, if your competitors are down too, you're on equal footing, so it's no big deal. Yeah, I guess the problem isn't necessarily that the LSE went down for now, it's more of a wider issue with problems at stock exchanges generally this year. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was just doing some research just to kind of look at what major glitches had happened, I was actually surprised at how many there'd been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Eurex and Zetra had some problems a while back and they called them serious issues, mm-hmm. which is strange the operator to call it. Um, NASDAQ's Nordic exchanges uh, didn't open for an entire morning um, because of some problem with the fire safety system at their data center or something. Okay. They released a bunch of gas into the, like, <laughs> in, literally into NASDAQ's part of it. Um, and Euronex had some problems as well. There's some technical hitches, but then also there's been wider issues at more global exchanges. SGX is obviously famed for its problems um, 
uh, until I ousted as CEO a while back. Um, and in the US, of course, you know, the Nisey, we wrote about this in March, they got fined for a problem mm-hmm. they had in 2015. That was based off of Regulation SCI, right? That's right. So they were the first ones to be fined under it. Um, they had a Wells notice from the SEC, and eventually the SEC said, yeah, okay, look, this was preventable. Yeah. things. And then, of course, NASDAQ a few years ago had a massive technical glitch that shut it down for like an entire at least a morning, if not the entire day. Yeah. Uh, and that was actually being followed by the White House. Um, NASDAQ has actually had other problems as well this year as well, and uh, famous issues with squirrels, um, mm-hmm. dating yeah. back to the 80s where they used to eat through their power cables and shut it down. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying the squirrels are always at fault, I'm just saying, why do they hate America? This yeah, is, it, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. terrorist squirrels. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's... It's tough in these situations. Like you don't want to pick on every single glitch that comes up, but when something does halt a major market for a morning, you got to think, "Come on, guys, what's going on?" I mean, like you know. Well, and I mean, if the regulators are now, you know, starting to codify that there will be fines because we feel that your outage was preventable, then mm. it, you know. But you know, my dad he worked in IT his whole life, uh, uh, building data centers um, for various companies, and that was for you know, good forty years, something like that. There's only so much you can really do, um, yeah. and especially as markets become more and more complicated, more and more electronic, uh, more high speed, more reliable, more reliant on other third party systems. Yeah, you know, it's going to become an increasing issue. Well, this is what um, a chap from Cast said, Lev uh, Lesokin. I probably mangled that pronunciation. I, I do apologize. Um, from Cast, uh, so Hamad spoke to him, and he said, "Look, you know." Uh, these exchange systems, they've built dozens and dozens of new order types. There's accommodations for high-speed trading, whether that's interfaces, co-location, whatever. A lot of it's built in the same pipe. And the more kind of complexity you put onto it, the more likely it is these things are going to happen. It's just a it's a basic um, matter of arithmetic when it comes to risk and the load you're putting on your systems. I guess it's kind of, I suppose it's more surprising they don't shut down more often. I mean, you know, the LSE's got a pretty good track record. And yeah. prior to 2011, I was looking back through the Waters archives, um, and there was, you know, Turquoise was going down every five seconds, and uh, the exchange was going down. Like well, last time the LSE, so LSE's trading platform is Millennium. The, um, they use Millennium IT technology, so that's the the Sri Lankan vendor they bought um, back in I think two thousand nine, two thousand ten. That first implementation happened. Mm-hmm. Am I, maybe I'm just remembering it wrong, so I'm not one hundred percent sure about this. Reckless speculation here, mm-hmm. but weren't there mat? Weren't they constantly experiencing outages for a while, like to the point where everybody thought that this acquisition was just a massive failure? Well, this is it. Yeah, I was looking back, and uh, you know, there's all kind, there's all kinds of weird headlines actually back in the Waters archives saying like human error suspected in sort of or like <laughs> deliberate kind of intervention that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that's related to the last time the LSE went down for a long time, which is when they rolled over to the new system in 2011. But it's been pretty stable since then, I guess. It's been performing better than. Some of the competitors, at least, yeah. but it's uh, it's just a problem with um, with these kinds of exchanges. And now, sort of, you know, if you're broadening out asset classes, not just from equities, but through to these new upstart crypto exchanges and everything else, which don't have the same institutional grade technology that even these guys do, and even they fall down. Yeah, you kind of, you know, there is maybe an issue with stability in markets that needs an equivalent beefing up of Reg SCI to come in. Sure. Yeah. And I'd know that. So our colleague in uh, London, uh, Josephine Gallagher, she will be looking at, not necessarily this, she's going to be looking at how uh, some firms are hoping that artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, tools will be able to help spot and prevent outages before they happen, spot and prevent code, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, disturbed code from entering the market beforehand. 
So if you have any thoughts on that, Josephine Gallagher would be the person to reach out to yep. on that. And you know what else could solve all these problems? What's that? Blockchain. Blockchain. <laughs> blockchain. Blockchain can solve blockchain. everything, man. It solve everything. So today, no, not today, or Wednesday, um, our colleague here in the U.S., Amelia David, she published a story feature that basically was looking at the the failed projects that have mm-hmm. occurred in the capital market space or the ones that you know haven't really gotten off the ground. And it's not just a kind of way of saying, like, oh, you know, you see this isn't working. It's more of a way of saying, here are the lessons learned from it. You know, here's, yeah. there are going to be fits and starts with any kind of, you know, what's supposed to be revolutionary technology, even though I don't view it as being revolutionary technology. I digress. Um, but a couple examples that she talks about in the feature there are uh, the DTCC's blockchain platform for repos uh, that's been shelved with the company choosing to follow through with other projects around the technology center. They're obviously in the blockchain game, the DTCC. Quite heavily, but not very willing to talk about their, their failures. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, we found out. Yeah. Um, six security services, uh, they scrapped uh, its uh, uh, securities processing project. BNP Paribas paused its venture with Smart Angels to register investor payments, a uh, project that was announced in 2016. Um, projects around syndicated loans, on a distributed ledger like those from NEX and or Next Group um, and Symbian uh, have either gone quiet or dropped out of the limelight. Companies have also decided to continue with blockchain but restructured the parameters of their projects like moving from a proprietary venture to one done through a consortium, which is what happened with BNP's uh, private equity platform. And others have dropped some initial partners, which was the case uh, uh, for precious metals post-trade blockchain between Paxos and Euroclear, which we will talk about in a little bit. Yeah, um, but I, I think it's interesting as well that something that didn't make it into the feature was just that, um, so I was speaking to Tom McDonald from R3, the um, yeah. big blockchain consortium last year. Uh, and I remember speaking with David Russer actually long before that when I was at risk and having a look at their kind of their plan for what they were rolling out and across all the various different sort of aspects of capital markets and trade finance and payments and everything like that, and it was yeah. just enormous. There's this massive table with all these projects and that kind of thing. I spoke to Todd in uh, in September, and I was like, so how's that all going? He's like, well, you know what? We've learned some lessons from this, and we've had to kind of refine the scope of what we're attacking and what we're doing, and I think that's that's an interesting kind of thing that really comes through in me as feature is just that... Um, you know, a lot of these guys, there was a, almost like an irrational exuberance about it at first, and, sure. and now people have kind of looked at it, and they've seen that either, you know, especially in syndicated loans, like JP Morgan was really big on that, and a few other people as well, um, maybe they've just thought, well, everyone else is doing it, there's no competitive advantage to it, or maybe they've realised that the potential's been overstated, so, I mean, I think the DTCC, actually, even them, who are the biggest proponents, really, I guess, uh, I think in the annual report, they said it's not a silver bullet. Yeah. So they're coming around to that now as well and saying, okay, well, it can't solve everything, as demonstrated by them shelving the uh, the repo clearing project. Um, and it just seems to be a bit of, and I found this at Cybos when I went last year as well, there was a lot more rational kind of thought around blockchain and what it's actually capable of doing and what it's not capable of doing. Um, and I think uh, Hamad actually, Hamad Ali, our reporter in London, filed a story yesterday on Wednesday um, where he went to IDX and there were clearing guys talking about blockchain. Mm-hmm. And you know, clearing excitement has obviously been one of the big areas. That everyone says it can target, it can disrupt. And the guys there were pretty senior. Like you know, it was the president of Vice Clear, it was the president of CME Clearing, uh, Michael Davy, head of rates at LCH, and they were all just going, 
you know. Well, I got two good quotes here from that. So yeah. this is from uh, Hamad's article. Um, so these guys were speaking at IDX Derivatives Expo, but two that I liked most were uh, this is Sunil Coutinho from uh, president of CME Clearing. Uh, he said, I've heard of a lot of things. It will disintermediate clearing or even that will cure cancer. I heard that, which is crazy. Um, so that tells me there is a lot of exuberance when it comes to DLT. When it comes to clearing, I don't know if just having a distributed technology that creates a universal ledger gives everybody an immutable account instantaneously where everybody stands, solves for creditors over a time horizon. I'm still not sold on that. Yeah. And Michael Davey, Global Head of Rates at LCH, said, we have various projects going on in terms of concepts like distributed ledger, but that is not the center of what we do. Um, just turning these markets over is complicated. The sheer volume, the, the, the certainty that you need. So this is a, Yeah, I mean, it, it comes to things like clearing in particular, like, you know, the way clearing functions, yes, it requires technology to do it. You need technology to calculate margin. You need it to make the calls. You need it to receive payments and collateral movements and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, clearing is a function of capital. Like, you know, you put your insurance up against your trades, and then the clearing house calls you for more insurance against your trades, depending on how the risk profile of the trade changes. That can't be solved by blockchain. That's yeah. whether you have $50 million to meet your margin call in your treasury account at that time or not. Yeah. Um, and I did like, uh, I really like Fimber Hutchison's quote in that story as well, where he just said, uh, you know, uh, people are telling him that blockchain's cryptographic protocols never be broken, and he says that sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And those bullshit antenna was twitching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> But it's not all doom and gloom, no, right? No. So 2018, we promised you, if you've been reading Waters, you know, we've been pretty, I, th- I like to think that, I don't know, maybe I'm not, people disagree, but I, I think that we've been pretty well in touch with the progression of blockchain from, mm-hmm. you know, we've been, I think, one, one of the few kind of tamping down some of the hype uh, around it for years now. In 2016, I remember writing that blockchain is overhyped, you know, in that feature. But we did say that, you know, going into this year, um, that this would be the year of actual real launches, people going live on blockchain set. And so we are seeing a little bit of that mm-hmm. slowly, small things, nothing huge yet, nothing that's this groundbreaking yeah, still stuff. Still not quite as much as everyone was saying last year. Exactly. Though, so, yeah. so uh, but just in the last two weeks, uh, last two, three weeks actually, had a couple articles that we wrote about and that we'll link to. But uh, just this week, uh, I spoke uh, with Dan Houlihan, uh, head of Northern Trust Global Fund Services Unit. They had announced that they were um, previously that they were building a private equity uh, block uh, blockchain for the private equity space, mm-hmm. and so they're using IBM uh, IBM's blockchain platform, which is on the IBM Cloud, uh, to develop and run the network, um, and it's built using the Linux Foundation Hyperledger uh, fabric. Uh, Dan told me that they have two clients that are fully live on the platform. Another one is scheduled to go live at the end of June, and then there are two more clients that are live or lined up to go live soon thereafter. So again, these are this is not a sea change, not anything like that, it's just a very slow moving process. And similarly, Paxos, um, who again, their, their project with Euroclear, while that failed, they still push forward Shielded by Euroclear. Jeez, yeah, exactly. Um, So Paxos, uh, I spoke with uh, the CEO, uh, Charles Cascarilla, about a week and a half ago, and he said the company has gone forward with his blockchain and for precious metals trading. He said that one gold producer 
is fully integrated in production, sending messages between themselves and 12 different counterparties, while several other broker-dealers and industrial traders are signed up and in the process of integration with more that are working their way through the contractual phase. So again, this isn't saying that, oh, yeah, there, there are a lot of blockchains flying, this is saying one, two, three clients here, you know, and that's just uh, going to be the pace of play right now. But it's not a proof concept, this key thing, it's actually in production. Exactly. Right? These are this fully live in production, you know, and how useful we will see. Um, it's still... Yeah. I mean, I still think that we've had we've had its number from for a while now, which is that blockchain, as it is, will have very useful applications in certain areas. We've already covered the story about being Paribas, using it for corporate actions, for instance, which is a natural use case for it. Things like precious metals trading, maybe. Um, private equity, obviously, is a good use case for it. And also, um, I think I covered a story a while back about the LSE, looking at maybe putting it into uh, SME markets, where there's not a lot of automation or a lot of technology sure. already in place. That makes sense to do that. Uh, maybe on a second kind of spur, it will form part of the architecture of technology moving forward for um, what we refer to as prime time. Um, yeah. In itself... Probably not. I mean, like, you know, you speak to a lot of guys, especially the buy side, and they say, well, we're looking at elements of blockchain and how we can incorporate that into wider kind of position tracking systems and, and ledgers and whatever, but we're not going to use blockchain. We're just going to use yeah. blockchain-esque technology. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, that's pretty much the way it's going to develop and go It's a forward. tool. It's not this, you know, be-all, end-all revolutionary thing. And again, like the two projects that we just mentioned, <laughs> gold and private equity. Makes complete sense there. Yeah. You know, they, they, this is not something that is ready for the scale of you know certainly equities. Yeah, I mean, like, like how many quadrillion securities did DDCC process last exactly. year? You just can't do it on blockchain. And again, I know there are some people, and we said this before, who will say, "Well, my blockchain can do it." And then you know, go and talk to Jennifer Peavy at the DDCC. You don't need to worry about to us talking about blockchain because right, you're going to exactly. make billions and billions of dollars <laughs> if you are, in fact. Correct. They're the guys who's listening. Get off iTunes and go down to Water Street and talk to those guys. Exactly. Down. <laughs> So, again, if you agree with us, let us know. If you disagree with us, always happy to hear from you. Um, we will be, uh, you know, we're always open to the discussion, yeah. certainly. Um, and obviously there will there'll be more big announcements to come. i got to imagine big, but not big, just live projects, I guess. Yeah. All right. So, one, you know, so, fun topic we were kind of kick around. I was... Uh, I was reading, I, I, I have about 15 magazine subscriptions, something like that, just a ridiculous amount. Yeah, so, he gets uh, paid too much. Exactly, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm just burning the money and uh, <laughs> using it for tax write-offs. But so I just wince every time a New York Times description goes out. I've only got one. And that's, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm wired, sorry. I can't imagine how much that's costing you. <laughs> so, I am a huge fan of Esquire magazine. Mm-hmm. So, like, the past 10 years or so, well, the, for about 10 years or so just one of the finest magazines around uh, where I couldn't wait till it came in the mail David Granger was the editor and he had uh, these incredible writers Chris Jones who's my all time favorite you know uh, long form magazine journalist um, Tom Junot who wrote you know one of the greatest profiles ever with of uh, Mr. Rogers if mm-hmm. you haven't checked that out especially with the documentary that's uh, coming out now you gotta go see it is it based on that profile, or is it? No, nah, I think it's just more or less just you know just about you know this great guy, Mister Rogers. Yeah. Um, but I got you got to read Tom's notes. It's truly great. 
Um, and then Tom Tarello, you, know, you just had this great stable of writers who were all very loyal to David Granger. David Granger, and he was there for somewhere around you know, 20 years, you know, about two decades. Uh, he was kind of forced out. I'm not, you know, he, basically he was, the writing was on the wall in 2016. And I can't even begin to tell you for myself, maybe not everybody agrees, the quality, the, the I gotta read this story, the, the everybody's passing around the story mm-hmm. factor just disappeared, like overnight, because Chris Jones and Tom Janot immediately uh, skipped town and said, you know, we're loyal to David, we're not going to stay with him. Yeah. Um, Tom Janot just wrote an incredible piece on Auburn softball, uh, kind of uh, this uh, scandal that uh, unfolded there. Uh, one of the finest sports stories you'll read this year um, he, that he wrote for ESPN, but... You know Tom Chiarella. He's uh, he's I can't remember where he's at, but he's still writing great stuff. You know. So this is all to say the reason why I bring this up is I'm on the ferry and I'm I get the uh, what is this the summer of 2018 men at his best issue. You know I can't remember which month this is here, um, but yeah you know, I'm going through. So I was I still go through the table of contents. You know. And they have a story. Ted Williams thinks you can do better by Richard Ben Kramer. And I'm like, one of the greatest profiles ever was uh, Kramer's um, profile of Williams back in, I think it was the 90s, basically. Williams is retired. Uh, he's fishing down in Florida, and he just fo- follows him around in Magic Canyon. It's one of the greatest profiles you ever read. Mm-hmm. Again, these Esquire profiles are usually sensational. So I'm like, oh, maybe they repackaged something. Maybe they did something. No, just repurposed these, rewrote the article. I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, I've read that story many, many times. I'll need to read yeah. that. There are stuff I'm going through. I'm like, eh, you know, nothing really here that I'm dying to see. Then I read one, The Butterfly Killer. When authorities caught up to the butterfly hunter, they got more than they bargained for. You're, dun, like, dun, dun. you're thinking, oh, man, this is going to be Silence of the Lambs kind of stuff, right? This is cool. Okay. Yeah. You know, go to the page, The Butterfly Killer. He was a former bodybuilder who obsessively stalked English nature reserves in search of his elusive prey, an endangered butterfly. When authorities finally caught up to him, they got more than they bargained for. I'm like, cool, this guy's got bodies strewn about his... Spoiler alert. Now, the guy just caught butterflies, and he received, I think, a 250-pound fly fine for this. They said they could go to jail, but no, no, he did So what was it that they... did they get what they didn't bargain for? Just the sheer volume of butterflies? That he had a bunch of like... butterflies in his house. He was sh- the, the largest, you know, but he, they said, uh, what did he say, Colin's house, about 8 million dead butterflies and moths um, that he collected. And I mean, that's, just... that's quite a lot, but so, um, fuck a dude will do. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, so, who, you know, ultimately, yeah, at the end yeah. of the day, and now here's the thing. First of all, I really kind of feel like you were setting this up to be like, oh my God, yeah. like he's, Killing people as well as killing the butterfly. Lovely design the front with the butterfly pinned yeah, on the board. Yeah, yeah. And just like, yeah, man, he's going to be. So I feel like months. you're misleading me a little bit here that I just, I get about a thousand words in. I'm like, then I'm about two, 1,500 words. In, I'm like, oh, so this is just about butterflies. Yeah. And just one particular butterfly. And this whole article is about this one particular butterfly, why it's so rare. It's, you know, it's. And he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. But never and so I'm just like. If he would have taken me through, if the writer would have taken me through um, this guy Cullen, uh, I can't remember his first name, his psyche, like, why does this massive bodybuilder, why is he obsessed mm-hmm. with these butterflies? No, he's not even interviewed in this in any way. 
So I, like, you had this great profile potential of this guy. Instead, you just dragged me through thousands of words about this one butterfly. Isn't it written in a way that makes you constantly think that he's going to get to the point soon? Yeah, there's something something coming or something coming. And that's, I, and it's funny, they just drop, like, at, just about the very end, it says, uh, at last count, there were 8,712,000 uh, uh, 8, 8, dead butterflies and moths sitting in 80,000 glass fronted in Palestine. And that's it. And it just kind of moves on. But that, again, that's a lot. But that's your that's your lead, isn't it? Surely, like, you know, when you go in there, you're like, when authorities come up with them, they found millions of butterflies. Yeah. And then a whole story in the nature of obsession and that kind and of thing. And then they go, and, like, know. and they keep on saying, like, this isn't, it doesn't make them nearly one. They, they found far bigger than that. Yeah. So my thinking is that these butterfly nuts are just, you know, that maybe they connect millions. Could see to collect millions of butterflies. You know, if you just keep on every single day, you get 10, 12, you know, oh, yeah. So anyway, then there is one galling sentence at the end, toward the end here, that I'm going to go to. More important for Thomas was the psychological toll that the po- oh so Thomas is a conservationist, a guy who's trying to prevent poach uh, mm-hmm. butterfly birds. So more important for Thomas was the psychological toll that the poaching has had on and the message it sends out. The large blue, the butterfly, now flies in Britain in greater numbers than at any time since the 1930s. It is a heartwarming conservation story in an age that desperately needs one. Please oh go gosh. F yourself, okay? Yeah, yeah. Look, You're making it seem like bombs are dropping again on London, and this is, this conservation story, which I doubt anybody was really, like, apparently, like, they picked up the initial story, but no one's, this is something that isn't being talked about all over the place. Like, it's not like uh, Sully Salzberg, you know, <laughs> landing a plane, the 747, in uh, the river. Well, I'd even read it if it was, like, a study of a cat and mouse chase between, like, this conservationist guy and this unknown poacher who was sure. like destroying the butterfly environment yeah. and like, you know, zodiac killer but with butterflies. Well, yeah, okay, fine, but it's just not, is it? No. <laughs> so it just, this is all to say, it is incredible how quickly, you know, quality can go down. You know, when when a core of great writers leave and stuff like that. Yeah. And every, every one of my bosses better remember this in this conversation. This is also announced that we're leaving waters. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> study up our own magazine. It's about butterflies. I will say, though, I'm not just going to you know, take you know, and say, you know, Esquire just doesn't do it for me anymore. I highly recommend it, people. Uh, go on and find California Sunday Magazine. Oh, yeah. They just said... They've been phenomenal since they launched, and they're they launched with. It's funny that their writers. I'd never really heard uh, their names aren't like the name like Chris Jones, Tommy, you know, people like that. People that you just know, um, you know, William Langvice, you know, guys like that. Mm-hmm. These are just. I don't know if they're newbies or if they they were just you know they were known in their targets or whatever. I, I I'm not sure where they all came from, but. These guys write truly fascinating articles. Their magazine, every single time they put one out, is each story is just interesting at least. And this most recent one, um, the writer Amanda Fortini uh, looked at what happened in Las Vegas with uh, Stephen Paddock, the guy who what was it? I think it was uh, uh, fifty-one or so killed uh, eight of uh, five hundred who were shot. Yeah. And then 800 total, including the shooting, who were injured in the stampedes and stuff like that. Just think about that. Like, 500 people shot. Shot. By one person. That's an incredible amount of people to shoot. Nothing happened after. (laughs) Um, 
And so he just talks about Las Vegas. Uh, uh, Amanda talks about Las Vegas. She's, a, I guess, a journalism teacher at the University of Las Vegas. And just how it's kind of this interesting city. So there's only 2 million um, full-time residents, 10 million people come and visit during the course of a year. So after that event, you know, most of the people that were at the events, they just went back to their homes, wherever it was, which, you know, for many of them was not Las Vegas. Yeah. And, but it was Las Vegas that was kind of left uh, with it. And the cover is stark. It's just a close-up, you know, of the front, uh, no words on it except for California, uh, Sunday Magazine, and then the two busted-out windows um, that uh, Paddock broke out to shoot down on the people. And then when you open up the cover, it's got the uh, exactly the same shot, but with the windows st- yeah. uh, still intact. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, piece of design. yeah. it's truly it's it's a beautifully laid out <laughs> magazine. The stories you can just flip through. It's not a huge magazine. You know, you can get through that one in a you know a nice little Sunday afternoon if you're tearing through. Yeah. Um, and so I highly recommend that. Um, this issue of Wired is pretty good as well. Was it? Well, I mean, yeah, Wired has rare, very rarely ever lets me down. Yeah. I mean, and I love uh, Popular Science. I, now, granted, I know the the editor in chief, uh, Joe Brown, but um, they've kind of switched. If you're into the technology, I don't know if if you are a subscriber of Popular Science. Um, their magazine now features a lot more long-form journalism that they kind of moved away from shorter articles to really kind of, we're going to take deep dive, similar to what Wired does. Yeah. Um, and it's really working for them, I think, you know, especially as somebody just loves long-form. So uh, that they've kind of had a shift there since Joe Brown's gotten there. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend that. That newsroom's all PhDs and stuff as well, isn't it? Exactly. It's, you know, guys yeah. that know their stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is just kind of stretching out that writing, allowing them to stretch out their writing muscles, essentially. So yeah, um, highly recommend those. Any any uh, magazines that uh, have really caught your fancy of late? I've been enjoying some of the stuff that uh, actually one of our sort of pseudo competitors, institutional investors, has been doing recently. How um, dare how you? How dare I say that? Ever. Was, they uh, just had their last ever. Um, just had the last ever print issue, but yeah. there was a great article about um, Club Fed on that about sort of um, yeah, yeah, yeah what happens to people kind of when they go into these minimum security prisons from for doing white collar crimes like insider trading, you know, yeah. wire fraud, all the rest of it. And then what happens to him afterwards, which is really interesting. And talk about how it actually does look completely mess up your life. Yeah. Um, in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, that was really interesting. They wrote a good one relatively recently, with last year or so, about um, uh, just the cluster, well, you know, uh, that um, that LaGuardia has become. Yeah. Um, and why it's just the worst airport in America. And just that was a really good uh, piece that they put together there. It is, yeah. And... Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the long-form kind of stuff, I read it's pretty much similar to you. It's, it's Go on to longform.org and just long basically form.org, pick whatever yeah, yeah. Uh, Just incredible stuff that goes up. And, I mean, this truly is, I know we said this before, this is a golden age, I think, of long-form journalism right now. Oh, yeah. again. Um, it's just unprecedented. Despite the the pressures that the industry is facing, it's producing some of the best content that's ever been written, I think. so. Well, I mean, people are coming around to the, the idea slowly that if you want quality, you're going to have to pay for quality. Yep. And if you're going to produce quality, well, you can't just have these 200 word, you know, you got to, you got to get into it and leave people being like, all right, I got everything I need out of this. It's just amazing people's attitudes though. Like, uh, you know, we, we uh, published a story the other day about, um, it was a Bitcoin story and we had an interesting chart on it that just showed a massive spike in volumes or something like that. And I posted the chart on Twitter and said, oh, you know, what happened on April the 27th? I immediately got this response from this guy at Hedge Fund who goes, um, Interesting chart. Shaman's behind a paywall. And I just, like, felt like reply. My first response when it didn't send was like, yeah, Shaman got an ETH, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, like, it's like, but I mean, what do you expect? Yeah. But if you've got the New York Times um, Facebook group and 
they'll post up their kind of key stories of the day and that kind of thing. And all the comments are just like, well, why isn't this free? Why isn't this free? Why isn't this free? And I don't know, like, it's amazing. People just think this stuff just happens. Like, somehow yeah. there's not an expensive investment people have to make and you should pay for it, like, at the end of the day. I mean, Bloomberg just put up a paywall, which is really interesting, I think, for the first time. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody's going to have... You're going to gonna have to go have down to, yeah. that, that route. It's just the way I mean, it is. And the Guardian you... can't fit any more adverts on its articles saying, please give us money. So yeah. they're going to have to do it. Everyone's going to have to do it eventually. Yeah. Um, actually, I got into a big you know, discussion um, at the bar with a couple of friends of mine and my girlfriend, um, just because they were talking about how they share their uh, Netflix password, their uh, Roku or uh, Hulu, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, if you like these TV shows that we're seeing, they, they don't just be, they're not made out of pixie yeah. dust, you know, that you, you can you got to start paying for what you like. I agree that, you know, the cable, it drove me nuts where cable would be like, no, you have to have these 300 channels, most of which you absolutely do yeah. not want, just so you can have, you know, this I, I, is the way that we got to go now. I've got an expensive cable subscription, but I literally only use it for sports. It's yeah. pretty much the only thing I use it for, and I can just probably do that through an app on my Apple TV anyway now. Yeah. So I'm seriously thinking about cool cutting. So yeah. I'm just doing that. Yeah. And I've got Hulu, I've got Netflix, I've got... FX now, CBS, yeah. you know, MTV. To my girlfriend, yeah, Amazon Prime show. Like Amazon that. Prime and yeah. all that, right, exactly. So I'm just thinking, actually, what do I watch on TV? And it's just football, baseball, yeah. um, like occasionally boxing and that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah it's generally pay per view. Got to pay for the quality, man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, you know, exactly. Cable networks are going to find, they're, they're finding out right now, cable providers are finding out that, you know, that they were kind of screwing over customers. John McCain was actually a big proponent of. Uh, you tried pushing forth legislation that would allow you to pick and choose what TV shows rather than, mm. you know, which I didn't necessarily agree with because, well, if you're going to pay for it, but it did kind of seem like a monopoly where they were teaming up and saying that you have to do this and that's just the way it is. But. Well, one interesting thing I thought, just tying it back to long-form journalism for a second, was because um, I've been following the whole paywall kind of argument for a while, is that a lot of people are saying for the, for the guys that do produce long-form, like, maybe you don't want a subscription to the California Sunday Review or whatever it is. You don't want to pay that each month, but you do want to read that article. And if they say, okay, fine, but you pay us 99 cents and you can read this article, like a microtransaction yeah. thing. Yeah. I do that, probably. Yeah, as, you know, as yeah. these micropayments become easier, more reliable, uh, safer uh, from a security uh, perspective, I think that is going to be a, a big model going forward. Right. That. Even talking about journalism coin as well which on the blockchain you can use this to go all right we're done for the day no more blockchain (laughs) all right well uh thanks uh for listening in this week again words rankings are open give it a vote um if you are an end user uh we have some events coming up click on those otherwise we will see you next week see you next week